Can you take your Bible, please, and meet me in uh, Acts chapter 6? On any given day, you can find any number, any given number of people in any given church and, and likely hear of a time when they faced conflict with others in the church. The conflict may stem from a full range of issues, and the memory of it may still bring significant heartache to the individuals involved. Life in a sinful world is hard, and sadly, as much as it pains me to admit, some of the hardest, most painful wounds are caused not by the world, but by the church. I've been part of three different churches uh, from three different denominational affiliations in my nearly 30 years as a Christian, and I have known people who were wounded by other church members in each of these three churches. I myself have been wounded, as I'm sure many of you have, during your varied church experiences, and, and who knows, I'm sure that we maybe even wounded others, either intentionally or not. You see, um, though instituted by God, the church is comprised of people who bring their sin-ravaged brokenness and baggage to the mix. And so it's really, it's really, it does not surprise me, um, it does not surprise me that, that we can inflict and endure such pain. Actually, when you think about it, it surprises me, or, or I'm thankful that there isn't more of it. And I think that's really a wonderful uh, testament to what God is doing among us in that um, the, the, His grace is of such a, a, a nature, it is so sufficient that it overcomes these things and even heals the most painful afflictions. I just want to say as an aside before we dig into our text this morning, I've got to tell you that this was, uh, um, on one hand, this, this was, um, <laughs> how to say, like just in the life of a preacher, once you get into the regular rhythms of preaching, there are certain weeks where the text opens up uh, wonderfully for you, and you're very thankful for those weeks, and then there are, there are weeks where it doesn't, and, and that's not pleasant. That's just a, a real challenge. It's a lot of hard work. Well, this was a week where the text opened up wonderfully for me, and I'm excited about what God has given me to share with you. At the same time, this was a difficult week for me in the sense that we're dealing with some internal church matters here as we look at the, the passage in Acts, and I want you to know, church, that I have no axe to grind here, okay? I have no axe to grind. I have no ulterior motives. There's, there's not, I'm not trying to say something without really saying it. It's just, I'm gonna, I just think this text is here. One of the benefits of systematic preaching is you just, you get it as it comes, and here it is, and we're going to deal with, we're just going to deal with church discord and conflict because uh, that's where we are in our study in Acts, Okay? So I just want to say that up front, that I don't want you sitting there thinking he's thinking about me or he's thinking about this situation. That's not at all what's going on here, okay? 
Well, and, and, and so I'm actually, as we come to Acts chapter 6, uh, I actually take a certain amount of encouragement, and maybe you can too, in knowing that, that these issues have been in the church from the beginning. And that God has been overcoming them ever since. You know, we tend to, to romanticize the early church. Fact is, though, the believers then, like believers now, didn't always see eye to eye. Uh, not everything was blissful. In the last chapter, chapter 5, we saw hypocrisy in the church by way of Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, and this chapter begins with complaints rising from within the congregation. Now, how did the church respond to such discord? Really, that's the question to be answered from our text this morning. Luke's pattern, I don't know if you've, you've noticed this or picked up on this yet, Luke's pattern thus far in the book of Acts is one where he alternates between a look inside the life of the church followed by a description of the church out in the community. This alternating pattern reminds us that both aspects are important. Both the well-being of the church itself as well as its witness in the world. Or, as we say here at East Parkway, we really want to be a community for the cause of Christ. That is, our life as a church community, our life as a church community matters, as does our witness out in the community. And I believe one of the things we learned from this passage this morning is that when a church is healthy on the inside its outward effect is wide-reaching. So let's read this together. You can follow along with me. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that is the twelve apostles, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for the time we have this morning in your word.
And on this particular Sunday, I'm particularly thankful for just the practicalities of your word. Uh, the, 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 spe, the fact that your word is specific, <laughs> specificity to, the, to just the nature of church life. And so I thank you that we have these examples of, of men and women of churches that have gone before us, who've dealt with issues like us, like any church, from whom we can learn. And so teach us today from your word for the good of your church and for the well-being of the people here at East Parkway. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts 6 begins with exciting news. The church was growing uh, and discipleship was happening as more and more people came to trust and obey Jesus. The witness of the church was spreading uh, even amidst pushback and persecution, as we've seen previously in, in chapters 4 and 5, the members of the church remained bold in their witness. The community was being affected for Christ, and people were coming to faith in Christ. Or as it reads at the start of verse 1, the disciples were increasing in number. Very exciting. It's all very encouraging. And yet soon the church faced a very real problem that posed a very real threat. Division. What follows is, this is my outline for those who want to follow along. What follows is the problem revealed, the solution proposed, the plan implemented, and the effect of the church and its witness, the effect on the church and its witness. The, 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 the problem revealed, the solution proposed, the plan implemented, and the effect on the church and its witness. It says, a complaint by the Hellenists arose, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here's what's happening. The church was reaching people from different cultures who typically didn't interact. Different people were coming together in the church and they were learning how to live together as a church. So there were the Hellenists, those who had assimilated into the surrounding Greek culture, and there were the Hebrews who maintained, fiercely maintained, their traditional Jewish distinctives. Now one of the beauties of church is how God unites people who are quite different from one another in terms of their upbringing, uh, their background, their cultural influences. At the same time, one of the great challenges of church is learning how to get along with those people who are different than you. They think differently. They behave differently. They speak 
differently. And so there was this tension in this church between these two groups of people. Though united through faith in Jesus Christ, they were still learning how to live as one. The Hellenists took offense because their widows were being neglected. Now, the Bible exhorts the Bible exhorts the proper care of widows. James, for example, in his New Testament letter, says that caring for widows in their distress is pure and undefiled religion. The Apostle Paul, when writing to Timothy, likewise said to honor widows who are truly widows, but that if a widow has children or grandchildren, the family should provide the necessary care. But if a widow is in need and has no surviving family, the church should step in and help. Apparently, that's what was going on in the Jerusalem church. Church members, as part of their regular tithes and offerings, were contributing to the care of their widows. However, evidently the Hebrew widows were receiving the lion's share in the daily distribution. Have you ever felt unfairly treated at church? Or neglected? Or forgotten? That's what's going on here. The Hellenists were crying out against perceived injustice. It's not fair the essence of their complaint. Presumably because of favoritism that swung in the direction of the Hebrews, although it could also have easily been because of the language barrier between the two groups or even the basic practicalities of trying to care. I mean, you can just imagine the logistics involved in trying to care for ever-increasing numbers of people. I mean, people were being added to the church not by ones and twos, but by hundreds and thousands. This was a real challenge. Whatever the cause, the church was beginning to split. You know, division within any church is deadly. For us, it may not be the daily distribution. It may not be uh, provisions for the poor or care for widows. For us, for us these days, not, I'm not talking about for us East Parkway. I'm talking about just for us today. For us, it may instead be things like how we prioritize the budget or what we emphasize as a church or how we uh, develop and determine which ministries to support or how we choose which songs to sing or not or a whole host of issues that naturally surface in the routine of normal church life. I think that perhaps, probably, 
the, the greatest threat to any church is infighting. You know, divide and conquer, divide and conquer is a tried and true strategy. And it is one of Satan's greatest schemes. One of his most effective weapons for driving a person away from God and from the church. How many of you know people today, I know I do, how many of you know people today who were once walking with the Lord, they were once a vital part of church, something happened at church, and now they're distant from the Lord and they have no part of church. This is one of Satan's greatest weapons. How can I get the people fighting amongst themselves? Now, of course, he cannot defeat the church. He cannot. Because Jesus reigns and is building his church just as he promised. But our enemy can nonetheless discourage the church and derail any forward momentum by dividing church members into factions that squabble over perceived injustices. It's just not fair. It's not at all uncommon for issues to arise because we all bring our opinions to the table, but it becomes a problem when our opinions lead to complaints and complaints lead to division. And make no mistake, the early church was dealing with the early stages of a church split. Offense was taken, accusations were made, factions were forming, sides were being drawn, the Hellenists were crying foul while the Hebrews were under suspicion and the congregation looked to the apostles for answers. And how did the apostles answer? They answered, I think, in three ways. First, by acknowledging the problem. Then by enlisting congregational participation. And finally, by equipping others for ministry. Let me explain. They acknowledge the problem by calling the church together, summoning the full number of the disciples to address the issue head on. This was a big deal. They knew it. Uh, that could have gone off the rails very quickly. This was not a time for hands-off leadership. But notice how they dealt with it. Not by taking over the daily distribution, rather by involving the congregation. They recognized the need, but were wise enough to know they weren't supposed to meet that need directly. For them to meet that need directly, to sort the details of what was going on and who did what and who didn't do what they're supposed to do and mediate between all the parties and then coordinate all the logistics of the daily distribution, that would have distracted them from their primary task, which was to pray and teach the Word of God. So instead, they met this important need indirectly by enlisting congregational participation. By saying in verse 2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, 
Listen, they weren't insinuating that serving tables was beneath them or unimportant. That's not at all what they're saying. Uh, They were just identifying the specific need while emphasizing the importance of congregational involvement in meeting that need. I think this is where where call, the issues of call and giftedness come into play. You know, the apostles' primary role at that time was to minister through preaching and teaching while others in the church who were gifted in other ways were to serve in other capacities. I believe this was excellent leadership on their part. Because had they stepped in to manage the daily distribution, not only were the church's preaching and teaching ministry suffer, but others in the church wouldn't have been equipped and empowered to minister in other ways. Hear this. If a church's leadership structure is such to where the leaders are micromanaging every need, either because they want to or because they're expected to, then that is an unhealthy church. If a church's leadership structure is such where its leaders are expected to manage every need, That is an unhealthy church. A church is unhealthy when its ministry is dependent upon the few instead of the whole. So the apostles acknowledged the need, enlisted congregational support to meet the need, and essentially equipped church members for meaningful ministry. They exhorted the church to do something. Pick seven men. And then they promised to support the effort by appointing those whom the congregation selected. At this point, we see that the congregation is being empowered for the task because the apostles were intentional to hand it over. In her book, The Equipping Church... Sue Mallory recounts a time when a man in her church was dying. He had suffered from HIV AIDS for many, many months. His name was Joe. And suddenly Joe took a turn for the worse and was now near death. And those close to the situation immediately called Mallory as she had been very instrumental in bringing Joe to saving faith and had since become one of Joe's closest friends. And so Mallory, as, as any good friend would do, Mallory rearranged her entire schedule, rushed to Joe's bedside, and while she's rushing to Joe's bedside, she just attempted over and over again to reach Pastor Charles by phone, wanting to let him in on what's going on so that he might rush in to comfort Joe in his final hours. Well, Joe died later that same day, and Mallory was not only disappointed, but also very angry with Charles, the pastor, because Charles never responded to her calls. And Mallory found herself beginning to get bitter, upset, 
This is his job, she thought. This is what he's been called to do. And then her disappointment grew when she learned that Charles indeed received her calls, but stayed away intentionally because he knew that Mallory was Joe's best friend and Mallory was God's chosen instrument in this particular situation. And then Mallory responds in this way. She writes, I was stunned. Charles actually caught me doing ministry and had the wisdom to point it out. He trusted me in a situation where he could have easily stepped in and taken over. Instead, he had the joy of knowing that a person he helped equip for ministry was actually doing it. There's an assumption in many of many churches today that meaningful ministry is for trained professionals only while the untrained members of the congregation are expected to sit and watch or to give themselves not to meaningful but more menial tasks. As if pastors are far more equipped to minister when in fact, biblically speaking, they're supposed to be equipping others for the ministry. One of our stated values here at East Parkway is what we call every member a minister. So we have this brochure. It's also posted online. It's fuller description online. But we have this brochure that's available every Sunday on the table in the foyer. It tells a little bit about our beliefs, 10 statements of faith, a little bit about our values, 10 things we value, a little bit about our purpose and our priority, an invitation on the back, <laughs> some pictures of the staff. I don't like my picture on the, on the back, but I was overruled. It had to go to print. We just had to get it to print, and so there we go. And so if you follow along with me, here in our middle section, we have this section on our values. And value number eight says, each member a minister. Let me explain what that means. Although we don't have formal membership at this time, we believe that if you are born of the Holy Spirit and a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, then you are automatically a member of his universal worldwide church. And if you call East Parkway Church your church home, your local church home, essentially you're a member here as well. And as a member, we believe you are gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve and minister in some way. We actually believe that God is very intentional about this, that God puts congregations together with different set of gifts and 
and, and a different mix of gifts. Because we believe that when members of the congregation are empowered for meaningful ministry, the church itself grows healthier and its witness grows stronger. Every member, a minister. I think it comes right out of Ephesians chapter 4. Greg Ogden writes, If we want to see Jesus manifest on earth, it will be through a community of people who lay down their lives for each other and build each other up through the gifts variously distributed throughout the local body. Church, the members of the church, of this church, of any church, the members of the church, members of the congregation are not to the church what the minor leagues are to professional baseball. They're not just amateurs in waiting, just hoping for the call to get into the game, the show. Instead, all members are already called by God and gifted by the Spirit to be participants in the ministry of Christ. I've heard it put this way. We don't have it... I've heard it put this way. We don't have it all together. We don't have it all together. Right? We don't have it all together. But together, we have it all. So, so how did the congregation respond to the apostles' instruction? All right, I'm kidding. With great pleasure. Great pleasure. Look at verse 5. And what they said please the whole gathering. Did you hear that? (laughs) And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Here's how I take that. I cannot, I cannot help but think that some, probably some, were probably still upset. Some probably were still unsure. Some probably were suspect as to whether an idea whether the idea of a seven person oversight committee would really work I, I just have to believe that not everyone was immediately on board because people then were like people now and as you know it's just near impossible to get a hundred percent buy-in 
But, but catch this. I think this is really instructive for us. But because the congregation as a whole, meaning the large majority, the wide majority, the, 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 the most of the people, because the congregation of the whole was in favor of the apostles' instruction, their positive response began to impact the response of those who weren't as readily on board. There's a lesson for us here in that good leadership elicits a positive response and positive response has a positive influence on others when it's shared. Right? We can be, we can be discouraged by others. Discouragement, we know, that's contagious. Well, did, did you also realize that encouragement is just as contagious? And so I just have to believe that because people are people, not every single person was immediately on board. I think when it's saying it pleased the whole congregation, I think that means the, the majority, the wide majority of the church was on board and then they began to encourage others until the church got on board. Because a congregation that participates in ministry is a happy one. The apostles basically equipped the congregation by telling them what to look for and by assuring them of, of leadership support. They were to find men of wisdom, meaning men who had the necessary experience, the necessary knowledge, good judgment required for the task. They were to be of good repute, filled with the Holy Spirit, meaning the church should be able to see in the lives of these men the presence of God. They should be able to look to these men and just see the presence of God in their lives. And then once the team was in place, the apostles assured the congregation of their support by praying for these men and commissioning them for ministry. You know, that they laid their hands on them was a way of saying that this was important to them and that they affirmed and supported this decision. And given... Given the names of those listed, this gets even a little more interesting just in terms of the, the, the healing that began to take place in that particular congregation. Given the names of those listed, it appears that all seven men came from a Greek or Hellenist background, which is significant, right? Because the Hellenists were the ones who were upset. And so I just find this telling and, and, and important to notice that the Hebrew, the Hebrew majority in the church affirmed a predominantly Hellenist seven-person board. You know, the Hebrews, I, I think, they could have fought for numbers. Well, if there's seven, we want four. We want at least four. They could have fought for equal representation. But instead, the church came together and concluded that since the Hellenists were the ones who brought the issue to bear, let's elect men 
who truly understand them and the need that's been presented. And then in effect, these seven men, by the nature of their ministry, served as what I might call complaint diffusers in the church. A complaint diffuser is someone who's willing to hear a person's complaint without egging it on or gossiping in any way. Complaint diffusers are godsends to any church. They overcome problems, not make more ones, not not make additional problems. They build bridges, not burn them. They seek to understand even before being understood. And they are essential to a healthy church. I bet you know of some complaint diffusers. I'm sure we have all been, all have been, in situations where someone comes to us to air a grievance that he or she has with someone else in the church. And I want to just say we need that. Like on one hand, we need that. We need people in our lives to serve as sounding boards, right? We need people in our lives to serve as sounding boards, people with whom we have the freedom to vent and from whom we gain perspective. We need that. On the other hand, those people must be able to hear us out without piling on. Because the more people pile on, the worse the issue becomes. Uh, Like the church in Jerusalem at that time, we need people in our lives and in our church who help diffuse complaints rather than exacerbate them. These were men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. The wrong men could worsen the problem. The wrong men could sow suspicion and mistrust and turmoil. The wrong men could deepen the divide between Hellenists and Hebrews. The wrong men could have faulted the apostles for not getting involved, getting more involved. But these men, these people, these complaint diffusers, these were a unifying force in the church. And notice the effect, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The church was strengthened, the gospel spread, People throughout Jerusalem were following Jesus. Even many of the priests who served in and around the temple, the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. 
joyful unity, uh, uh, joyful unity led to fruitful ministry and the congregation was at the heart of it. And I think this should encourage at least three responses. First, if, 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 if you are at odds with someone in the church, make every effort as quickly as possible to get to the bottom of that and come to a place of reconciliation. Go to that individual personally and seek to understand and be understood in that order. Be quick to acknowledge any of your wrongs and quick to forgive any of theirs. If the issue persists, and as the Hellenists did in this passage, bring your concerns to the leadership or others of good repute instead of sowing discord in the congregation. Second, if, 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 if you're aware of problems in the church, become part of the solution. Become a complaint diffuser by offering perspective and not taking sides unnecessarily. Be like the seven who were chosen here, a person of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, overcoming problems by promoting at every turn, by promoting unity and oneness in the church. And then third, let's not allow, we, we really cannot allow problems in the church to derail us from the greater mission. Now you see in the big picture, far more was at stake than the care of widows only. Now that is not in any way to minimize the care of widows, not at all. But at stake was the church's participation in the great commission with which Jesus says to go and make disciples. Had this issue not been sufficiently addressed, had those two factions continued to, to war with one another, had this, the sides that were drawn and taken, had the lines between them become more concrete, had there been a refusal to understand, a refusal to, uh, to confess your wrongs, a, few, a refusal to grant forgiveness. It could have hindered the church's proclamation of the gospel 
Because when infighting takes over, a church loses its outward focus. As issues arise then, let's address them without fixating on them. And again, this is not to minimize the issue. It's just to keep them in their proper place. So that we can be like those disciples who were increasing in number by becoming more obedient to the faith. That applies to to me, to us. I need, I want to become more obedient to the faith. And I'm sure you do as well. And so... From this passage, we learn that problems in the church are nothing new. That discord among church members can be dealt with in a positive way. That in the the relationship between church leaders and the congregation they serve, there must be a mutual willingness to work through issues as they arise. That congregational participation in the church's ministry is to be valued and encouraged, and that internal church matters matter if we're to have an effective witness in the world. And so let us be, East Parkway, let us be a community for the cause of Christ, increasingly healthy on the inside while having a noticeably outward wide-reaching effect. That's what we're growing toward. That's what we're striving toward. Amen? Amen. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time we've shared. Thank you for speaking to us so, um, so clearly, so uh, personally, so tenderly, bringing conviction, perhaps, where conviction is needed bringing healing, we pray, where healing is needed, so that oneness and unity that we have already, we already have oneness and unity in the Spirit, may we be eager to maintain it in the church for your name's sake and for the good of your people. Amen.